Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John, the great gospel of John. And we're in the second chapter today. Continue looking at this wonderful gospel. It's been described as a gospel of belief because it is a book that is designed to point us to Jesus, knowing Him not only as a human being who lived a perfect life, but also being fully God. And this is the focus of this great gospel. And being introduced to Him by the gospel writer and by the Holy Spirit, the hope is that we will all know Him intimately as He would have us to know Him. I'm reading from John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, and I'll read through verse 12. And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it. To him, And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. We have no idea as Westerners how critically important the practice of hospitality is in the Middle East. In fact, it is raised to the level of a sacred duty. When someone comes into the residence of a Middle Eastern person, it is incumbent upon that person to do whatever he or she can to make his or her guests feel honored. You know the story in the book of Genesis, perhaps, it's found in the 18th chapter, when Abraham, at the age of 99, receives a surprise visit from three Individuals, As it turns out, one was a pre-incarnate visit of Christ, probably what the theologians call Christophany, because it was the angel of the Lord and two other angels accompanying the angel of the Lord. And when this man, Abraham, saw his company coming, he made haste to produce a great feast for them. And he was barking out orders, directing people. He was actually running, if you can imagine, at the age of 99. It may not have looked like running to us, but it was running for him. We here are a little older understand what happens when we age. It's a picture of the sacred duty 
of hospitality in the Middle East. When an occasion like this one, a wedding in Cana of Galilee, when such occasions arose, what we would be better suited to understand is this. That to run out of food or drink in the course of the wedding week, mind you, not just a wedding evening or afternoon or day, a wedding week. If a woman had never been married before, the wedding would occur on Wednesday. If a woman was widowed and was being married again, the wedding would occur on Thursday. And then seven days of feasting would occur. People would pull out the stops in order to make sure that all the people in their village and all the guests whom they would have invited were well fed and had plenty to drink. And we see what concern Mary has in this passage of Scripture when she comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. What she was saying is, you know, Jesus, the embarrassment that is attached to having guests come, especially to a wedding, and then all of a sudden to run out of food or to run out of drink. And it was not only an embarrassment. There is evidence from literature contemporary to this event in the people of Israel's life of a bride's family actually suing the groom who was responsible for feeding all this, for putting this big event on and paying for it, actually sued their son-in-law because he did not provide enough food and drink at the wedding. It was costly emotionally, relationally, and financially to have such a situation to arise. In the Scriptures, wine is a symbol of the era of the Messianic salvation. We read just a moment ago from Genesis 49 about the blessing of Jacob, of his son Judah. If we read the entire context, we would see he blessed every one of his sons. He had a unique blessing for each of his sons, but he gave this blessing to Judah, which we read, that the scepter would never leave his hand. That's a picture that the Messiah would come from Judah, his son. And we know Jesus, humanly, is a descendant of Judah. And as we read through, we saw about the fact that wine was used as a description of that era, the Messianic era. Wine is also described in the book of Psalm 100. 4 verse 15 is something which gladdens the heart. The Bible equates wine and its use with joy. What does this passage of Scripture, this familiar story, teach us regarding Christ's bringing joy into our lives? Now, note, as we read, we noticed that this is the first of the signs which Jesus performed. There are only seven miracles which are described in the Gospel of John. If we were to go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would see so many miracles, it would almost be impossible for us to remember them all. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. But in the case of John, his focus, as we've seen, is to point to the deity of Jesus Christ. And by the way, what are signs for in our everyday life? Well, signs are things which point us to something more important than the sign itself. 
Now, these signs were incredible, these miracles that Jesus performed. Changing water into wine, phenomenal what that meant. Incredible. But that particular sign or miracle was pointing to something more important. More importantly, it was pointing to someone whom we know as Jesus. We see this in this passage of Scripture. So, let's consider together now, in an effort to understand what this text teaches us, what Christ would have us to know today, what the Holy Spirit would teach us today, regarding Christ's bringing joy into our lives. It begins with the requirements, and the requirements for Christ to bring joy into your life and my life are two, I see at least in this text of Scripture. The first of which is this, we must invite Christ into our lives. Now, let's use our sanctified imaginations for a moment, project ourselves back 2,000 years in this particular setting. Can you imagine a bridegroom and the bride making up their wedding list? We know that everybody in the village of Cana of Galilee would have been invited. Let me stop just a moment and draw attention to that little village, Cana. Cana was nine miles north of Nazareth. Where did Jesus live? In Nazareth, nine miles north of of Nazareth. And it was a very obscure village. It would not have been highly populated, but undoubtedly there would be others outside of the village who would be invited. And maybe when you were getting plans made for your wedding, you got a piece of paper, you sat down with your spouse-to-be, and maybe a mother-in-law and a father-in-law, or two sets of in-laws, and you began to write down your must list, and then you had a maybe list over here, right? And you thought, well, who do we leave out? It's a big question mark, isn't it, when weddings are prepared for? Who do we leave out? We don't want to offend anybody. We want these people to enter into the joy of this most celebrated event of our lives, and the parents would want that for their children, of course, because of the significance of it. Jesus was on the must list. Jesus was on the must list because his social life was something that was desired. Now, most people today, if Jesus were around, they would say, Ma'am, we may not ought to bring Jesus to this wedding. Because if we do, he's going to put a damper on everything. Well, that reflects a very poor understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is not a hermit. Jesus is not a recluse. Jesus is not a party pooper. Jesus is one who brings life to every occasion. Life beyond the normal. After all, He is, by His own self-description, the life. There is a life that He brings to an event, whether it's a one-on-one relationship or a large group setting, that is incredible because it's supernatural in its nature. Christ's social life, as depicted here and throughout the Gospels, Christ's social life has a normalcy and wholesomeness about it that deserves our imitating His life. We're to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not socially awkward, but socially adept. We see this in the fact that not only was he invited to this wedding, but you cannot help 
but detect when you read the Gospels how frequently He's the guest in people's homes. And He goes to banquets. Jesus was the life of the party for sure in the best sense of the word. Now, one way that we can tell, at least I think we can tell, what kind of person a man or a woman is, is the way in which children relate to them. And children are hard to fool. Have you noticed that? They're very difficult to fool. They have a built-in reservation around people that are a little off, whatever that may mean, or who don't like them. They're like dogs that way, right? No offense to the parents of little children, but we know that's true. They can sense it. And so Jesus is depicted also in the Scripture not only being a guest at many parties, dinner parties and other kinds of celebrations, but also children are always gravitating to Jesus when you read the Gospels. And He warmly receives them. We have seen already in the Gospel of John the way in which John introduces Jesus. He says, He is full of grace. Now, we know what grace means. Grace is that wonderful force that enables us to become children of God. We cannot, on our own merit, become a child of God. We need the grace of God to become a child of God. We need the grace of God to live the Christian life. But when grace is used, it always carries the idea, when it's related to an individual like Jesus... The idea of charm, the idea of winsomeness, the kind of personality that just draws people like a magnet to himself. So Jesus is certainly one who is desirable company. He's the most desirable company that you and I will ever have in our lives. In the book of Psalms 1611, listen carefully. Speaking of God, and remember, is Jesus God? Well, yes, we've learned that in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we learn that when it says He was God, it doesn't mean there was a time when He did not exist and that He became God, but the language is very obvious and clear in its intention. It's to show us that He's always been God. He is God the Son. And the Bible says in Psalm 16:11, "In your presence, O Lord, there is fullness of joy." Jesus brings joy to every situation. Jesus later in the gospel in the 15th chapter in the 11th verse says this, "These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete." When Jesus shows up in a person's life, He gives us His fullness. Of His fullness we've all received, and grace upon grace. Included in His fullness is this aspect of joy. There are other aspects, peace, certainly, but also joy. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and in your right hand, and remember where are we? We saw this last Sunday. If we are children of God, 
Where are we? Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. I, as a child of God, am in the securest place in the universe, the right hand of Jesus. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. No place like the hand of Jesus to find pleasure. Right? Unbelievable. I had a conversation with a young man on Friday evening. He was being very vulnerable with me. He only recently came to know Christ. And he said to me, he said, Mike, I know I've received Christ, but there's such a tug on my heart toward the world. The things that are, things which have Robbed me of so much of my life. He's 30 years old. Robbed me up until recently of so much of my life. And I must admit, Mike, he said, I did get some pleasure out of the lifestyle I lived before I received Christ. And who could argue with that? The Bible actually says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, sin is pleasant. Did you know that? Sin's pleasant. But then the writer goes on to modify that with this prepositional phrase, for a season. And as he began to tell me what was going on in his life, he said this. He said, what happened in my life back before I received Christ as my Lord and Savior? I got pleasure, but what I discovered was that that pleasure soon petered out. And the result was that I needed more pleasure. And my appetite for pleasure grew and grew. It took more and more of those things to bring a place me to a place of satisfaction. And so we understand that in Christ there are pleasures forevermore. Sounds like somebody we ought to know, doesn't it? And want to be with, want to hang with Jesus, right? By all means we do. Now let me draw your attention to something that we would be remiss not to address. Where does this first Miracle occur. And by the way, the word translated first, as it relates to the word sign, later in the passage of Scripture, means not only first in time, and that was true, it was the first of all of Christ's miracles, but also first in priority. Why would it be first in priority? Because Jesus teaches elsewhere in the Gospels how the old wineskins cannot keep the new wine of the Gospel. And this particular sign, this particular miracle, is relating to that in part. That this is a symbolic act saying a new era is being instituted. And this is the image that I would like to use in order to communicate that. But also, this is about a marriage, isn't it? This is important for us. Listen carefully. Remember that the Gospel of John is the New Testament equivalent of the book of Genesis. How does the book of Genesis begin? The first book in our Bible. How does it begin? In the beginning. How does the book of John begin? The same way. In the beginning. And in the second chapter of Genesis, there's this beautiful description of the marriage relationship. How... It was not good for Adam to be alone. 
And God could find no suitable helper for him among the animals. So what did he do? He took a rib out of the side of Adam and from that rib he fashioned a mate for him, Eve. Beautiful story. It's interesting in the second chapter of John. We have a wedding. Heralding the beginning of a new creation. A new people are being formed. A new Adam, Christ being that individual. We know he's described as such in the book of 1 Corinthians 15. There's a freshness. Jesus sanctions marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.36, there was some debate in Corinth as to whether it was sinful to marry. There were people who were pushing for monasticism. Well, the problem with monasticism is you're only one generation away from extinction, right? That's a problem. Not to say that there aren't some people who have a gift of celibacy. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But in 1 Corinthians 7.36, this is what the Word of God says. It says, there is no sin in marriage. It's God's ordained method of creating people in His image. Praise the Lord for that. So, Jesus is sanctioning marriage here by performing His first sign or miracle there. And then Mary comes to Him. I've mentioned this once from verse 3 already, but I want to look at it once more. And what does He say? They have no wine. And please take a look at this more carefully. Verse 3, look at it as I read it. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus... Literally, this is the way that it should be read in the original language. It says... When the, when the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. What that says to you and me is, and by the way, verses 3 all the way through 10, all the statements about something having been said literally are present tense. So they could be translated says. And that makes it contemporary to us. This is our story here. This is the Word of God to us today. And when the wine runs out, and the Scripture goes on to say, verse 4, it doesn't use but there or however there. It uses the simple conjunction and, and Jesus responded. What this tells us about, tells us about this story is there was a crisis, and this couple is just barely married. There's a crisis already. And here's what I would advise you. You know, those of you who've been married a while know that you've had some crises in your marriage. There are things which have come up that have been very unsettling in your marriage. There will be some more which come up that are very unsettling in your marriage. But please be sure that Jesus, who performed His first miracle at a wedding feast, and the word for wedding is gamos in Greek, it's the same word for marriage. He is interested in your marriage. And He is the one who can do His work in your marriage to restore it. Invite Jesus to your marriage. He should be the prominent person in your marriage. You are selling yourself short if He is not first place in your marriage. And as I tell young couples when they come to me for premarital counseling, or couples who are in trouble in their marriage... One of the first things I will say to these couples is this. 
You need to, if you will love Jesus more than you love your wife or your husband, put Jesus first, then you're qualified to really love your spouse. And you can be a great blessing to her or to him. And only then will you be the best husband or the best wife you can be. Invite Jesus to the marriage. Invite him. Invite him regularly. Give him his rightful place. Now, Jesus could have declined the invitation. The good news is he will never decline your invitation to have him into your life. When we look at John chapter 1, verse 12, if you want to look at it as I quote it, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We saw that real belief is what? Receiving is believing. We saw the word receive was a hospitality word. It's like someone comes to your house and you embrace that person. You, just, you don't do an obligatory kind of reception. You really get into the reception of this one Christ who's come. And you become a child of God. He will never turn down your invitation to receive Him into your life into your home, as it were. But Jesus could have declined. Why? He could have said, there's going to be a bunch of drunks over there. I've been to these deals before, he said. I, I know. And in the passage, look at verse 10. And the head waiter, and let me tell you a little bit about the term head waiter. It really means the first at the head of the table. He's like the table guy. And he probably was... Not hired to do it. He was a close family friend. It was his responsibility to oversee the fact that everyone was comfortable and well-fed and had plenty to drink. And verse 10, And said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, that phrase, have drunk freely, is a word which means undoubtedly has gotten drunk. I mean, there were people who got drunk, and I can see why, if it went on for seven days. And when the water pots, six full of water, are turned into wine, you know, that's a lot of wine, right? 150 gallons of wine? I think that's a lot of wine. And what that would translate into, I don't want to give you wrong information here, what that would translate into would be if you gave every cup or glass of wine had four ounces in it, that would translate into 2,000 drinks. And then, if you did what was normal at that day, usually the wine was cut, one-fourth wine, three-fourths water. So that would make 6,000 glasses. That's a lot of wine. We're going to get back to that in just a moment. But Jesus could have said, I don't want to be with these drunks. After all, he had been accused himself. This is interesting. In Luke seven thirty four, Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, who accused him of that? The religious leaders accused him of that. And they were looking for anything to nail Jesus and discredit Jesus. Anything they could find to do that. And so they accused him, and Jesus could have become a little defensive, maybe, and maybe thought, well, you know, I've got to be careful here, but no, he went. And Christ's disciples were with him as well. In Luke 5:33, the same religious people who were trying to gun Jesus down, they said this about 
Jesus' disciples. He said the disciples of John the Baptist fast and pray, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast and pray, but your disciples, Jesus, drink and eat. One talking about drinking water, drink wine, that's what he was saying. And they eat, maybe eat more. Now, Jesus' disciples weren't drunkards, or they weren't gluttons either. They were people who lived a normal life. Here's a question for us as believers. Would it be wrong for you to go to a place where alcohol is being served? Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Jesus hung out with people who were drinkers and big drinkers in some cases. So what is a responsible way to connect with this whole issue of alcohol for people who are disciples of Christ? I'm going to give you three suggestions for this. There are many more that could be given. First of all, we just need to listen to what the Bible says in any place, but especially in Ephesians 5.18. It says, don't get drunk on wine. So don't get drunk on wine. Now, I don't know how one measures drunkenness. I don't really know that. And it's really, I think, a moving target. But you probably know if you drink wine when you're getting drunk on it. Don't get drunk on it. Don't even go there. Here's the second thing. Don't use wine as a stimulus for joy. I've heard people say, well, it just makes me feel better. Well, here's something we need to understand. In that same verse where it says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, it goes on to say, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy. You do not need to resort to any stimulus for joy if you know Christ. You simply need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill your life. And you'll have plenty of joy. You'll have joy overflowing in your life. Now, here's the third thing I would say in response to a responsible approach to alcohol for a believer. Don't use your liberty in Christ... The Bible says, all things are permissible for me, but all things are are not always good for me because they can hurt other people. This is important. We do not want our liberty to cause other people to stumble. Jesus has some of his sternest words for people who cause others to stumble. Little ones, especially in Luke 17. He says, if you make one of these little ones stumble, you need to put a, you might as well put a millstone around your neck and be tossed into the lake because your judgment is going to be stiff. I'll never forget listening to Bob Lilly, the Hall of Fame defensive lineman from the Dallas Cowboys. Years ago, I was at the El Paso Country Club listening to a fundraiser. He was speaking for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I had such admiration for Bob as an athlete, but even more as a Christian. He was not a Christian when he played professionally. He did not come to Christ until he woke up after the Cowboys won their first Super Bowl. He lived his whole life aimed from the time he was a high school all-star in the state of Texas, an All-American at TCU, and then on to an All-Pro. 
He came to Jesus. He woke up that morning and he said, is this what this is all about? Is this all there is? He was empty. And the emptiness was filled when he received Christ. In his testimony, he was talking about after he'd received Christ, he owned a Coors distributorship in Waco. He continued to own that distributorship. He said he was driving down the highway and he came on a car wreck on the highway. He got out to try to render service. And when he did, he noticed there were empty Coors cans. He felt like the Lord was speaking specifically to him. Don't make somebody else stumble. Don't make somebody else stumble. These are just three suggestions about your use of alcohol as a follower of Christ. They're biblical, I believe. Not only must Christ be invited in order for Him to bring joy into your life, He can't bring it into your life from a distance. But Christ must also be obeyed. Let's go back again to verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. Read between the lines. She was saying that knowing who Jesus is. She had been there at His conception. She had been there at His birth. She heard all the great praise and adulation which came to the baby Jesus at the nativity. The shepherds came. The angels sang. And then later, the magi came. Then when time for the dedication came, when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple in His infancy, There was a man named Simeon who prophesied over Jesus. And also, there was a woman named Anna, a prophetess in her own right, and she gave prophecy about the person. She knew who Jesus was, and she'd had this relationship. Jesus, we're told, honored his father and his mother. He knew who he was by the time he was 12 years old. We see that in the book of Luke. Jesus was growing in his consciousness of his deity. But... She had been the authority in his life. And now there's a transition that's occurring here. Let's look at it in verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, calling your mother woman is unprecedented in Jewish literature. It's never seen in the Scriptures except one more time in John 19, 26, when Jesus is on the cross... He's concerned about the welfare of his mother, and he says, Woman, behold your son. He couldn't even gesture with his hands, but with his head he could still move. And he looked at John, the one whom Jesus loved. He looked at him and nodded in his direction. Woman, speaking to Mary, behold your son. He was letting her know here in a polite way. It's not impolite. He was letting her know, Mother, the time has come for you to understand what you knew from the beginning, that I am the Messiah and that I do not take orders from you. Anyone who would suggest that Mary is co-regent with Christ is not biblical. There's no way. She's the greatest woman, I would say, who's ever lived. That's my assessment, which is not a professional and final assessment. I think she's the greatest woman who's ever lived. After all, God the Father chose her to be the son, father, mother rather of Jesus. Incredible. But she's, by her own self-designation, in the first chapter of Luke, a sinner. She needed Jesus too, just like we do. And the Word of God makes it very clear that there's this point of demarcation in terms of Jesus' relationship to his mother. 
how are we to obey the Lord? Well, let's look a little further. Look at what Mary says very quickly. No sense of resentment based upon what Jesus has just said to her. The Scripture says, His mother said to the servants, Whatever He says to you, do it. Now, this is important. How are we to obey Jesus? Whatever. That is all-inclusive, isn't it? Whatever. Don't ask what it's going to be. Just whatever you are told to do, do it. Whatever. And you're to do it completely. And what this means is, really, to do it is to trust Christ. That's what it all boils down to. Do we trust Jesus? Go to chapter 6 for just a moment. Let's look at verses 29 and 30. Jesus answered and said to them, really we should read verse 28, I'm sorry. They said therefore to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Remember what Mary says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. We all want to know what we need to do, correct? To be in right relationship with God. What shall we do that may we work the works of God? Now look at Jesus' answer. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's it. Do you know what our work is? To trust in Christ. To live by faith and not by sight. To follow Him. That's what it means to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to be a complete kind of obedience. Partial obedience is no obedience at all. Servants in this case, went beyond the minimum because if you look back at chapter 2, what did they do? Verse 6 says, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish education, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And look what they do. They fill them up to the brim. They completely fill them to the point of overflowing. This is the kind of obedience we're to render to the Lord. Let's not ask how little may we do in order to accomplish your, your order. When I was a freshman in college, I was taking freshman English, and I was doing rather well in the class evidently because the teacher called me in and said, Mr. Woods, I'd like to recommend you for honors English next semester. And I began to let the professor know that I was working, I was madly in love with my wife-to-be, spending a lot of time with her. I was also leading a ministry in young life, and I was, in addition to that, pledging a social fraternity. And I didn't have the time to do the extra work that I assumed would be part of such a class. And then I had the gall, after having said that to that lady, I said, what must I do to get an A? I was only interested in getting a grade. I didn't care what I learned. And uh, she didn't give me much of an answer, if I remember. But I got the answer when I got my grades. I got a B in the class. She sent me a clear message. Because, and rightly so, because I was not giving all to that effort in English. A lesson learned, by the way. And as it relates to Christ, we're to want to do all we can in faith 
for him when he tells us. And we're to do it promptly. Look again at the text. Verse 8, he said to them, draw some out when? Now. Take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. Do it now. Promptly. Psalm 119.60 says this. It says, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. When the Lord tells us to do something, He wants us to do it now, not delay, and to be prompt in our obedience to Him. Elizabeth Elliot has written, delayed obedience is disobedience, and that is true. When Jesus is obeyed, Jesus takes ordinary things or people and transforms ordinary things in people into the extraordinary. He transformed ordinary water into outstanding wine. Let's go ahead and read here. Verse 9. And when the head water waiter tasted the water which had become wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said, Every man serves the good wine first, then that which is poorer. You have kept the good wine until now. Wow! This is amazing. The good wine. It was excellent wine. It was not some kind of knockoff cheap wine. It was the real deal. And this is a picture of what Christ does when Christ is obeyed. God takes ordinary people like you and me. And He does extraordinary things through us. Paul says to the Corinthians... My brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise according to the world standards or influential or noble because God loves to take those things which are really looked down upon in the world and use them to bring honor to Himself. Jesus only uses obedient servants to change things. Now, here's something I want to say before I forget. Who were the ones who knew what had happened? Mary knew. Jesus knew. The disciples knew who were there. There were probably four, Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. After all, Nathaniel's home was in Cana. Maybe it was a relative of his who was getting married. Maybe he was getting married. We just don't know. But what we do know is... The head waiter didn't even know. The bridegroom, who was the responsible party, he was bailed out and didn't even know it. How many times have we been bailed out by our Lord and didn't even know it? But the servants knew it. And why did they know it? Listen carefully. Jesus says in the book of John fourteen twenty one, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. I will reveal myself to her. This is the key. If we obey, Christ reveals himself. And to the degree that we obey, to the same degree we grow in intimacy with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you like to have that kind of relationship with the God of the universe? It sounds absurd, but it's true if we respond to what He says in obedience completely and promptly. It's ours for the receiving. Well, let's move on in the remaining moments and look at the results. The results are phenomenal. When Christ brings joy into our life, the results are 
phenomenal. First of all, He gives us joy that continues to increase, and I might say, throughout eternity. Not just time, but eternity. Look again at what is said in verse 10. Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, you have kept the good wine until now. The word have kept suggests that what I just said, that this wine never runs out. It just keeps on coming. The joy never runs out. It keeps on coming because of who it is who gives it to us and who it is who lives in us. He is the embodiment of joy. And by His presence in our lives, we get to share that. And we become the agents of joy to other people. Are you a person whose presence brings joy into other people's lives? If you know Christ, that is true of you if you're following Him. He wants to use you and me. And by the way, I think the final apologetic, really, among the final apologetics with the love, joy, the whole picture of the fruit of the Spirit is the final argument against those who would say Christianity is a hoax, a farce, it's a figment of people's imaginations, it's a placebo which people have been given to keep them calm, and it's just not for intellectuals, you know. You can't think and be a Christian. But what we know is that joy is ours in abundance to be shared with other people. To let Christ spill out of our lives into others. And it will cause people who don't know Jesus, if they've had the joy of Christ fall on them out of your or my life, it's contagious. And a joyless Christian, by the way, is a contradiction in terms. No joy, you better wonder about your relationship to God through Jesus Christ. So, we have this joy that continues and continues and continues. Some of you know the name Frank Lloyd Wright. Mr. Wright, arguably the greatest American architect during the 20th century, was asked late in life, Sir, what is your greatest work? And he smiled rather wryly and responded with these words, My next one. Here was a guy who had a vision, didn't he? Well, Jesus' greatest work is His next one. All of His works are great. But what He continues to do in our lives, He does this. Heaven is a place of incredible joy. We know that from reading the book of Revelation and other things in the Bible. The Bible says, this is the Apostle Paul's testimony, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. That's right. To gain. We shouldn't have a death wish. We shouldn't be not taking care of ourselves so that we'll die sooner so we can be with the Lord. That's wrong. As long as we're drawing breath, we have the opportunity to be full of the joy of the Lord and to minister to other people. I'm not just talking about preachers here, okay? This is us. This is all of us who know Christ. We can be one big reservoir of joy as individuals, but also as a body of believers. This church ought to be full of the Spirit of God, and if we are, we will be loving and joyful and peaceful, patient, right on down the line. Full of it, overflowing. This is our privilege. Christ demonstrates His glory through your joy. Look at verse 11. 
this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Do you know, I would have thought Jesus would have done his first sign in Jerusalem. Right? That's a holy city. That's where the throne of David is. But he shows that he was not seeking the glory of men. He was seeking the honor of God. He says in John 5.41, I do not receive the glory of men. Hey, we're not worried about, I should not ever be worried about getting praise from men. Nor should you. We want to deflect whatever praise might come to us to the Lord because it's His presence in us which empowers us to be this kind of people. And Jesus demonstrates His glory through His joy. This beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. You know what His glory is? It's the crucifixion, believe it or not. If we were to look at John 7.30 and 8.20 and 12.23 and 13.1 and 17.1, we would see this reiterated over and over again. His glory is His shame. Christ died on the cross. He was in all of His glory when He was on the cross because that was God's will for His life and it brought glory to God and it brought glory to the Lord Jesus. The wine in this story suggests joy. But it also foreshadows the cross work of Jesus Christ. Jesus shedding His blood. Whenever we take communion, what does the cup represent? It represents the blood of the Lord, right? It's the fruit of the vine, the blood of the Lord. So we understand this as we see the glory of Jesus coming into our lives in the form of our joy. He he secured our joy. The Bible says about Jesus, listen, Hebrews chapter 12 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. For the joy, and that joy He got, that joy would be you and me, He gives it to us and wants to send it through us to other people. And what happened? says His disciples believed in Him. I thought they'd already believed in Him. Well, they had Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, probably John the Apostle, the unnamed one, and those five, five disciples who had believed in Jesus. It's very well described in chapter 1. They, hadn't they already believed in Him? Well, sure they had. But this tells us that our development of faith is something that goes on and should be in progress, in process, right now. I have known Jesus Christ as my personal Savior for almost 60 years. Unbelievable. It's hard to imagine that a child could come to know Christ. But I am Exhibit A maybe here today for that. At the age of eight, a little before my eighth birthday, I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. 60 years. And I'm still being processed by the Lord. Thank God He's moving me forward in faith. I need to continue to grow in my faith. We never outgrow the need to grow. Ever. So, that's exciting to me, quite frankly. And I hope it is to you. Men believe. But not all the men believe. Look at verse 12. 
And after this, he went down to Capernaum, which was his headquarters there on the Sea of Galilee. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. Well, his brothers had not yet believed. We see this in chapter 7 of John. So it's possible to be in the presence of joy personified, to be the recipients in the sense of getting sort of the overflow of joy that others are experiencing from Christ and still not know Him. How do we know Him? Well, let's conclude by going to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John 20, verse 30. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Belief. Whenever this command or this statement to have faith in Christ is found in the book of John, this is what it literally says, believe into Him. The idea is there's movement toward and trust in Him. It's not intellectual understanding or belief only. The demons believe that there is one God, but that doesn't make them redeemed. They're not going to be in heaven, and they're certainly not happy in their existence. But the thing that we must understand is that we're to come to Christ and put our full trust in Him. Trust Him. He's totally trustworthy. Isn't He inviting? I mean, I look at this, and I'm just bowled over. Bowled over. Final question for you. Has the wine run out in your life? Has the wine run out of your marriage? How about inviting Jesus into your marriage? Has the wine run out in your work? How about inviting Jesus into your work? Has the wine run out in your worship of the Lord? Personal, private, and public. How about inviting Jesus to your worship? In your home, some of you are single parents. In your home, has the wine run out in your home, married or single? Invite Jesus, and He will bring joy. You don't need a new challenge to get joy. You don't need to reinvent yourself to get joy. You need Jesus. Invite Jesus and believe in Him, trust in Him. Let's look at the last verse of chapter 3, and we're done. John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity to worship you today. And we ask now, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us individually about our need of You to invite You into our lives and to obey You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Hope you have a good week.